Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a guest that I think he's going to teach us a lot about uh, about the full cycle of being an entrepreneur, about building, scaling, financing, and then also exiting a business, and then also about doing it again and doing it in a in a in a space that is quite hot at the moment. There is a lot going on with all of the AI and and cybersecurity and all of this stuff. So I think that it will be a good chance to um, to discuss all of these aspects. So I guess without further ado, Christopher Alberg, welcome to the show today. Oh, thank you very much for having me. I'm excited. So born and raised where, Christopher? So I grew up in Sweden, uh, west coast of Sweden, Gothenburg, born back, I guess, uh, 50 years ago and uh, spent my first, call it 26, 27 years there before moving moving to the U.S., Really cool. So how did you develop the love for computers? So, you know, look, like like a lot of others, uh, I got my hands on a Sinclair Spectrum back in the, I must have been in the 80s, wasn't it? Uh, and I remember a friend and I, we wrote software for that. We built some drawing program, a sort of a CAD program back in the early 80s. We sold that in, on newspaper ads. I can't say that we made a lot of money, but that was the first piece of software that we sold. and and. Uh, then got into software and, you know, studied computer science uh, at university, did my PhD in computer science and, and uh, never looked back. And you certainly never did. And I think that your professor helped you in the process. So so how, how did you meet your professor, Stefan, and, and what was that process of, uh, of starting to discuss, you know, what this potential venture would look like? Because you literally went right into it. I mean, you didn't do much of... Uh, you know, what people do here of corporate America or maybe like uh, taking a stop at a startup, you went right into it. Is that right? That's completely right. For better, for worse. Uh, uh, you know, so no, I was very lucky. Uh, as you said, I, uh, I've i never had a boss more or less in my life. I I, uh, I did my master's in computer science in Sweden. You do sort of your master's right away. Um, as part of doing that, I did... Um, I, or just sort of in the lead up to that, I took an AI class in in uh, in Sweden, and there was this uh, guy Stefan Treve, uh, who was the professor of that class. Uh, we started talking. Uh, I needed to do a project. Uh, he ended up being my uh, sort of examiner for that project, and uh, we started doing some work together. And uh, then over time, first research, and and then by 1996, what became Spotfire. Uh, the first company that we started, and we worked all together. You know, since then, it's uh, it's a long time from 1991 until now, and and uh, yeah, no, it's a long time in the making. Yeah, no, I hear you, and and you guys were at it with that business for over 11 years before the acquisition actually happened. So, so can you tell us about how that brainstorming process, you know, like was with with Stefan, how you? How you guys you how you convince him you know because you're his student how how do you convince him to really go at it together? It, so it's you know somewhat complicated. Um, Stuff and I sort of hit it off. Um, I went off to University of Maryland for a summer of 1991. Did a project there with a great another professor Ben Schneiderman. We worked on how to visualize large databases. 
that um, that at that time was research. It became a paper that we published. Uh, God uh, uh, still gets referenced that paper. It's sort of crazy from a long time ago, soon 30 years ago. Um, it was good good work on how to visualize large databases. Just before, you know, these days everybody talks about visualizing data and information visualization and all that sort of stuff. Back then that was very weird. Uh, but right. but that became a thing. Uh, I came back to Sweden um, and we sort of tried various sort of ways to keep this going. And, and I ended up being a PhD student um, and uh, basically spent the next four years, three and a half, four years on turning this research into a, a PhD thesis, uh, because that's what you do when you're a PhD student. And B, at the same time, towards the end, turning that into a product that we had the good luck of being able to take the code from that research and, and turn it into a company. We found a local venture guy in Gothenburg uh, who invested in the company. And in, in 1996, I sort of overlapped for maybe yeah close to six months doing both finishing up my PhD and, and starting a company. Strong recommendation against doing that. I was sort of like literally not just no sleep, probably negative sleep, uh, <laughs> crazy times. Uh, and, and, but then, you know, was lucky to come out of it, um, having gotten the PhD done, but, and then equally importantly, having started the company. And that seems quite challenging too. Like how is that transformation from the dogmatic approach? Because you were doing this on the, from the PhD type of lens to really shifting it to the pragmatic approach of building a meaningful business around that? I mean, how do you go about that? So it's a great question. Um, the biggest change, I think, is that when you do PhD, a PhD and you do research, sort of the, the, the goal is to, A, obviously you want to do reproducible results and blah, blah, blah. We could talk about that for a long time. But you always want to sort of think as big as you ever can with this and try to make your results apply as many things as you ever can. But when you do software and start a business, you've got to find a market segment that you can be focused on. And that sort of focus from a business point of view versus trying to create sort of a most, the most generalized research are literally at conflict. And we ended up having a lot of discussions, a lot of debates, a lot of, you know, sort of just different approaches to this. But in the middle of all of this, again, this was probably late 96 coming into, um, 97, I moved um, from uh, Gothenburg uh, to Boston, uh, sort of landed here, got off the plane and realized that, oh, damn it, you know, here we have sort of not 8 million people like in Sweden at the time, but we have a market of, you know, 320 million people. It's enormous. And we can only take this on by focusing on something and more or less luckily stumbled on pharmaceutical research as a place to go after. And we focused in our company on that and, and just had a tremendous two, three, four year run at going after that segment and nailed it. And then was, was able to build from that into a much more significant business. So let's talk about that. Like what we're saying. So once you finally pulled the trigger on this and, and you are already like really in mind, you have in mind, like, Hey, we're going to build a business around this. What were some of the early employees that you were able to really, uh, you know, bring together to be part of this thing? Because because here you are, you know, someone that is like very much now with a PhD, with the, you know, all this dogmatic approach. Like, how do you get to convince people to jump in it, you know, on one thing that is like your very first business? You're not very knowledgeable of the world of business yet. And how do you get to convince people and who did you convince? You know, that's the weird part, because, you know, you always look back at that, that sort of time. And you say, like, I wouldn't listen to that guy. <laughs> sort of, you, know, <laughs> right, right. you know, who is that crazy guy? But, you know, it, it's weird. And, um, you know, we, we built something cool. You know, like I'll say, and obviously, I'm, I, you know, I'm not very objective. But the, but the software that we built, uh, it's funny because I still use it. Uh, sort of it sounds very geeky. I actually used it this weekend uh, to do something nice. that relates to the current business. And it had some magic to it that it allowed you to basically take any set of data, be it an Excel spreadsheet or a big Oracle database or what have you, and turn that into a visualization that you could work with. And, and that magic was there. And people looked at that. And I think they saw the passion in my eyes for that, man, we're going to make something big out of this along having, you know, the, this piece of software. Then pretty early on, we were able to apply that in a very dramatic way. It's sort of hard to convey here on, on the radio, 
but it's um, or on the podcast, but we were able to map that or sort of apply it to pharmaceutical research in a way that got people in pharmaceutical companies just say, wow. And, and we really went after a very high value problem. You know, this allowed us to go raise money. This allowed us to sort of get a whole bunch of customers and, and be able to go recruit a, a pretty stellar team of, of salespeople and marketing people and, you know, all the stuff that you need to sort of have it take off. But it's, you know, it's probably that, you know, again, A, the humble way of saying it is just like, <laughs> I wouldn't buy for myself back then. But at the same time, you know, when you have that sort of between somebody with a lot of passion and a couple of proof points to it, you know, that, that it actually, and, and maybe that tenacity that, look, it's not just what you see now, but there is enough energy behind it that you know that even if it's going to be a rough road in front of you, we're going to go find this, the solution. And when you see that, you know, then, that, then you can make it happen. And talking about making it happen and, and also making money, what, what ended up being the business model of, of, of this? So it's a great question. So it became back then, this was uh, on-premise software. Um, we sold it to, you know, with a professional software uh, with the classic 18% maintenance. Over time, we turned it into more of a SaaS-like business model. I would say that it was sort of hybrid because, to be honest, it was on-premise software that we charged a subscription for. So we were sort of forward-leaning on the business model, but the software is primarily back then on-premise. Over time, it migrated in, into cloud, but sort of forward-leaning on the business model over time, but old school on the software. Um, we were able to sell content that went with our business in, in a good way. So that allowed us to sort of make people think subscription. And, and it, it became a very solid business model. So by the time we sold the company, we were getting closer towards $100 million of, of, of bookings and sort of becoming a, a really nice business that we could, could, could go sell and, and um, became something good. Really cool. And, and I mean, we're talking about 96 when, when you started the business and, and you were alluding to this earlier. I mean, now everyone is all over data, data, data here, data there. But in 96, data was not as popular. So I guess what were some of the challenges that you guys were facing during the early days of building the business? So, you know, I was going to say there's an immense set, but, you know, the first of all, I would say to your point that, you know, People talked back then about business intelligence and so on, but it was sort of like thought about as reporting with sort of a little bit of glamour thrown at it. Now, to your point, it's like everybody's like data science, data, whatever. And and so, you know, going out, you know, raising money for this, recruiting to this. Back then, people wanted to do e-commerce and telecommunications and, you know, all kinds of interesting. The, the hot sectors were certainly not the sector we were in, but again, by we found this sub-segments in, in, in going after pharmaceutical research where we were able to sort of carve out a niche. And then by the pure sort of business momentum, I think we proved that we were onto something. And then that sort of grew into something. We went after other segments. We went after financial services and oil and gas exploration and uh, intelligence. We'll come back and talk more about intelligence, I think, here. But yeah. sort of as we were doing that, we were building something that over time became a data visualization and, and data analysis business that today you'd probably call, the, call a data science business. And it became a very solid business. But, you know, look, we had, if you want to delineate the sort of set of challenges, we had all the challenges. <laughs> all of them is probably the way to think about it. You know, one thing that is really interesting that, that you reminded me of is that founders always make the mistake of um, of really going out with a model, and then they understand that the, the I would say the building blocks of the model, they're not, they, they don't sustain well enough, the structure, and everything comes crumbling down. And I always tell founders that you need to start with the store, and then you build into the mall. So one of the things that I heard you speaking here about was that you started tackling certain industries, and then you would jump into other industries. So what was that process of, of, for example, like dealing with one industry, understanding that it worked, and then how did you jump into other industries? What was that process? That's a great question. So, you know, we were pretty much following the book, and, and the book was, you know, maybe you've read it, Crossing the Chasm uh, by Jeffrey Moore. Um, it's sort of the, I, I like to call it the only marketing book ever worth reading. Uh, maybe I'm annoying a whole bunch of other people here. Uh, <laughs> uh, who have written all kinds of other marketing books, but it's a right. great book. I think it's completely 100% timeless. 
I think it has sort of come back, resurgent a little bit recently here because of, um, you know, more and more people are looking to B2B uh, as, as sort of an interesting segment now that maybe B2C is a little bit less interesting than it was a couple of years ago. But it's still basically, you know, find a narrow segment where you can be the biggest guy, the biggest fish in the pond, and, and then sort of figure out who are the key partners in that segment, who are the lead customers, who are the early adopters, that's sort of the key thing. And then, you know, and then repeat that from segment to segment. And then over time, you'll see that these segments come together into something more technological. And for us, it went from, you know, these different segments into something that we thought about more as what would be eventually became data visualization or a version sort of 2.0 of business intelligence. And, uh, but it was a process and, and we followed that book to the letter and I still pick up that book. I think I reread it last year yet again. I, I give people copies of it. I just sprinkle it around and, and that's sort of our, the model that we follow. And, and uh, uh, I'll probably bring one of those copies into the grave. Very cool. Well, next time we have a drink together, I would expect you to come with one of those copies. Yeah, I certainly so, will, uh, sir. <laughs> <laughs> really cool. So, so Christopher, how how you guys were experiencing really growing the um, the business? How did you guys capitalize the business? What was that strategy and the process like? Good, good, good question again. So, so we started off. We got first investment from a local VC in in Sweden, you know, Homes Capital. Um, they knew that we'd sort of have to go global with this, so. We were lucky at the time, uh, Atlas Venture, um, they're now called Accomplice here in Boston. Um, Atlas Venture at the time was very focused on helping um, companies like ours doing the cross-Atlantic jump. Back then, that was a big deal. You know, now it's not such a big deal anymore. It's still hard, but but it's, you know, not as unusual. Back then, that was a big deal. So I was very lucky to run into via these guys at Innova Homes Capital um, this guy uh, called Philippe Claude, um, he had been the first investor investor in business objects, um, which was one of the biggest successes ever coming out of Europe. They were sold eventually to SAP, I think, for $7 billion or something wide like that. Um, so he'd been on the board of them and worked on taking them from France to the U.S. So, Bernard, uh, uh, so Philippe uh, joined our board back in 1997, and just became sort of instrumental in providing fantastic guidance of, of how to go after things. And then from there on, we added, you know, a set of a set of investors. I think we raised in four, in total forty million dollars, which you know by today's standards is like nothing. Uh, yeah. I still look back at it and think of like, hmm, could I not raise the last twenty? <laughs> I'm a cheap right. bastard. Uh, but we raised 40 and in the end game sold the company for 200 or 195. So, you know, we did good returns for people. Uh, pretty much everybody made good money. Some some made more, some made, you know, but I think pretty much every everybody made money and some of them a, a whole lot. So it was good. It was a good journey. That's amazing. And and I love the fact that you talked about crossing the um, the Atlantic, right? Yeah. Because I'm also from Spain, you know, from, from Europe and 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 I completely understand what you mean with that because people have so much trouble uh, coming from, let's say, overseas to to here to the U.S. because it's just a different beast, different dynamic. So so what do you think? You know, like why do you think so many of those founders they fail in the attempt of crossing the Atlantic? So I I think you know first of all you show up in the U.S. and it's sort of there. I think there are two sides to it. One is sort of what you're leaving behind in Europe at some level, and then what you're landing at in the U.S. And, you know, you could argue all day, but especially for B2B technologies, the U.S. is always the early adopter, pretty much always. You know, that was true 30 years ago, and I bet you it's going to be true in 30 years from now. You know, again, I'm sure there's some people who will be angry at me for saying that. I think as a or Swede by background, I can say that. Uh, but... Um, I've sort of seen it many times at least, and, and I think it's still the pattern. So so you walk into the U.S., and it's sort of you're dealing with the early adopters, and, and they're demanding. They they want to have access to the best technology. They want to have the best people. They know how to buy that technology. There's sort of standard approaches to it. So, you know, and, and the set of the channels, the salespeople, the, the whole machinery around it, the, the system integrators, they're all there. And so when you show up there from, you know, where it doesn't really matter if it's Spain, Sweden or Switzerland, uh, you know, dude, you know, who are you? 
<laughs> you know, so, 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 right. so that's sort of the, the one side of, of all of it, non-trivial. Uh, Got it. Then I think, you know, when we come, you know, and again, it doesn't matter if it's Switzerland or Sweden or Spain or, or and, and so on. Arguably, it's probably easier at some level when you come, the smaller the place you come from. Because, you know, when you come from a particular market, I think, you know, Germany might be the, the at some level the hardest because you're dealing then with a fairly big local market. Um, right. Now, maybe not as early of an adopter, but it has a lot of intrinsicness intrinsicness to it. And then when you show up in the U.S., you sort of have to leave all that behind. The good news, you know, Europe, the, the problem, and I don't want to make this about U.S. versus Europe. It's Look, it's all great. We're all, all great markets. But the European market is sort of, it's obviously not very homogeneous at all. Every market there is different. Every sort of segment is different. And what goes in Sweden is not going to go in Spain and vice versa. Whereas in the U.S., you know, there's some differences between selling in New York and Houston and San Francisco, but it's more or less the same. So, so you know, being able to adapt to that based on where you're coming from and where you're going from, it's non-trivial. And you just got to be very humble, very open-minded. I hope we can talk. I'll tell you about all kinds of failures that I did personally going from having been sort of in a perpetual business model and then, you know, now doing SaaS, just that shift, you know, Making your head do something that it's not used to doesn't matter if you're experienced or at some level, it's probably better to be inexperienced then. So at least you're not biased. It's, it's not into yeah. this stuff. No, I hear you. It makes sense. It makes sense. So, so why don't we talk about now the, um, before we shift gears to your, to your latest, to your latest venture recorded future, I want to, I want to wrap up with the, um, with the acquisition, with the, with the m and story. How, how did the acquisition happen? So, you know, it's sort of classic. Um, Tipco, great company uh, on the West Coast. Uh, they were looking to expand into, they want, they were sort of, a, or they are uh, the kings of real-time data flow uh, in businesses and uh, sort of real-time, how, how data sort of move, we'll call it data in movement, data uh, data in transfer and sort of uh, what, they, what they invented there. We were the masters of dealing with doing data analysis when data was at rest. And so they wanted to sort of add that to their portfolio. They were interested in the industry segments we were in. They were interested in some of our technology. So uh, they saw our business. I don't even remember how we first met up, but then pretty quickly thought this would be a great ad. We went through the classic sort of negotiation, you know, where first everything is great, you know, things is awesome. We have a certain price on the table. Everything blows up and big drama, and we sort of walk up and leave, and and then uh, come back together, and and eventually we figured out, and it became a great deal, I think, in the end game, both for buyers and sellers, and and uh, uh, it's been great to see that the team, many many of the core engineering team, are still there, you know, twelve years later. It's sort of wild, actually, and and it's uh, I think it turned out to be. Be something really good for the buyer buyer and I've, I've been very proud to to see that happen in a, in a solid way really cool because you were uh, pointing to that it was a 200 million dollar deal is that right yeah 195 so yeah which you That's know amazing. it's funny these days you know you hear 200 million I was like, yeah no it's a big number it's, it's for me it's like an enormous number now then you hear some other guy selling his company for you know 19 billion or something you're like ah. Oh. Hey, well, number is a small number, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> everything is relative in life. I think that an exit is always an exit. Yeah, so, exactly. um, so that's that's really fantastic. And and I guess you know now you know you you did your your vesting and 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 all of that stuff. So so I don't think we would get in trouble if we have you answer this. But I guess going back now, before you were to do the deal, what would you do different? That's a good question. Um, we probably there there is some deal mechanics of sort of how we played it you know like no so it's sort of tricky stuff but you know you when you uh, we're in the midst of doing a deal you want to make sure that you have a series of contenders um we did not create enough of a uh, sort of a set of uh, potential buyers we had some but we we should have had more if we would have played it perfectly um uh, uh, we uh, now remember this was in june of 07 so I was going to say we and we've sort of built up the precursor to being able to go public. Now, also remember that come August of 07, the world started to melt. So yeah. uh, and then it went completely downhill, you know, not 
far after that. So the timing at in hindsight, we certainly didn't know this at the time, but the, in hindsight, that the timing looked pretty damn impeccable. Um, but I think we should have had more contenders uh, so that we could create more of an auction. We should have played, you know, it's a couple of sort of deal plays that we should have done better. But more, more or less, I'm pretty happy about how we did it. Got it. Really cool. And then you were with Tipco for about two years. Yep. So uh, was was it as bad as they painted normally the vesting? No, 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 no. It was good. You know, those I still have a lot of friends there. Um, I, I remember coming home to my wife at some point and I said, look, uh, you know, because I had started working on that idea in 91 and this was then sort of 09. So I was like, look, I've worked on this idea for 18 years. You know, that's going to sound terrible to a lot of people here, old, old man here. But I worked <laughs> right. on that idea more or less for 18 years, a bunch of it in, in academia, but still. So I was like, I, I better have one other job before I die, don't I? <laughs> so, <laughs> like and then, you know, I ended up sort of getting this new idea for what became Recruited Future. And, and um, my co-founders of Spotfire had left earlier. So I called them up. And, and sort of pulled them back into the fray. And after I'd sort of first written up the patent application and filed that and, and so on. But, you know, we, um, no, I just had to do one more job before I died. That was sort of the idea. I hear you. And ideas are, are like buses. You know, there's always one that, you know, is going to stop by. So I guess, how That's did the this danger. bus That's stop the by? Danger. I hate these ideas. They're killing me. <laughs> that's it. That's it. Ideas, ideas are like buses. So, how did the uh, the door open for this bus of recorded future for you? Um, so, literally, I was on the treadmill, um, and it struck me that we had done a lot of work uh, with Spotfire, visualizing and analyzing uh, what I would call structured data, data that would live in Excel spreadsheets and data that would be in Oracle databases. You know, highly structured data. But we had done some work, and I had sort of personally done some work with, uh, we'll call it intelligence uh, agencies, where you were dealing with more unstructured information. And uh, that information, you know, in that world typically would sort of originate out of a stack of wet papers found in a cave in Afghanistan or something like that, uh, that you sort of turned into data. And it's much more unstructured. And through various means, you sort of turn that into structured data that you can help analyze. And and it struck me literally on this, it sounds crazy, but I was on the treadmill running and it struck me that, man, I wonder if we could apply the same approach to turn structure, to turn unstructured information into structured data by applying that to the web. So if you think about the web already back in, man, this is a long time ago, but you know, just certainly in 07 and probably 10 years before that too, but in 07, you know, the amount of data flowing to the web is obviously incredible. And it's the biggest sort of information concentration that has ever happened in the history of mankind. So what about if you could actually get your hands on that and turn that into structured data, and not just structured data, but try to really turn into data that you can analyze and make it analyzable and, and use that data for intelligence. Uh, and uh, so... I sort of, that idea hit me. I sort of ran up from the treadmill to the kitchen, wrote down the idea, called up my patent guy and said, here's this idea. Uh, and please, please do a provisional patent application around it. And, and we got that done and that sat for a little bit. And again, then we turned that into a, you know, prototype and a company and we were off to the races yet again. And just out of curiosity, why did you do a patent? Because on patents, you just, you know, tweak something and, you know, it's it's good to go. You know, it's a, you know, it's good just question. very costly and it takes forever. So why did you do it? Yeah, you know, it's a good question. I think, so So we would never use our patents sort of in offensive fashion or, you know, never say never. I guess I shouldn't say that. That's probably a bad strategy. <laughs> uh, the, the, uh, you know, it's certainly... You know, the strategy is to have it for defense if somebody would come after us. That's number one. Number two, I do think that it's a good way of sort of encapsulate the core value of what you've done if it is technological. You know, there are certain businesses that are more sort of business process focused or where the patent doesn't make sense. But at the core of our engine are a set of elements that are patentable. And in fact, you can find that patent if you go to the USPTO, it's issued. Um 
it's a system for collecting data at mass scale and extracting data and you know, helping to do predict predictive analysis. So we have the patent on that. Um, it's very helpful in the early days when you you know when you have very little intellectual property to bring to the table when you're you know you know you go to somebody to raise money when you talk to your early customers when you talk to early people it's good to sort of say look at the core there's a patent it it's it's a tangible in a world that is highly intangible so i would recommend it if to people who a knows how to do patents to to people who work in domains where it makes sense i wouldn't do it if you don't know how to deal with patents and i wouldn't do it if you don't know how to work with sort of using it as a weapon but it can be used as a weapon in the right circumstances and it can be very helpful. So, and we've done that in both companies and it's been a helpful strategy. Absolutely. Including defensive strategy one time in, in the prior company. So, so it's not your core strategy, but it's a good tool, tool to have in your tool belt. Got it. And I guess for the founding team, you convinced Stefan again. I did. (laughs) Stefan and another guy, (laughs) Eric Bistron, who was both early, early guys at, at Spotfire. So, uh, they came back on and and we went at it and uh, and and we were off to the races yet again. And you actually recruited like really incredible, um, I mean, really interesting profiles. No? So people from the CIA, from NSA, from FBI. So how did you get these people on board? So look, we we sort of there's a couple of steps here. First of all, we we sort of did a pretty unique set of funding at, early on. We we had these sort of two alternatives that we could either try to self-fund or bootstrap the business. That was one idea. But we knew that there was a pretty decently sized build to build to do here. We had to go build something. So we are like, look, we should have a financial partner with us. Um, we knew the Incutel guys from before. We have a long history of working with the intelligence community. Uh, sort of, I've, I've done a lot with, with them through the years. So, so we're able to get them on board. Uh, Google was a newer uh, friend in all of this, but Google came on board at the same time as Incutel pretty much and, and, and ended up being a great, you know, just tremendous partner in all of this. Um, so, so we did that. Um, the, then, you know, as we started building the company, our first market segment was the government. So the U.S. government and working with intelligence agencies, it's, it's sort of probably won't go into more detail than that, but, but you know, that's sort of where we started. Before we figured out that this cybersecurity use case was sort of the natural extension of that. Um, as we did this, it turns out that we've sort of lived in a world over the last 15 years of lots of mystery. As you know, there's been a lot of wars, a lot of conflict around the world. And there are a lot of people who've got an education and training in intelligence of various sorts. Uh, and, and that's true certainly in the U.S., but I think it's true in most of Western Europe. And so there is this talent pool to draw upon of people who are, they're not necessarily math geniuses, but they're analytical geniuses, people who know how to deal with um, unsure, insecurity, in, in sort of uncertain is probably the word I was looking for, uncertainty and uncertain information. And so we were able to go recruit that sort of people to get them on board here into the company and put them together with data scientists and programmers and other set of people to be able to build that perfect sort of mix of people to build an intelligence platform. And, and that worked out pretty well. Not, not maybe if I as sort of the extension of, I like to sort of compare our business to the being the, the Bloomberg of, of cybersecurity. So if you think about Bloomberg, he pulled together the financial geniuses with programmers to build the Bloomberg screen of, of, of finance, and we want to be the Bloomberg screen of cybersecurity. So we have to bring together the same mix of people with the sort of analytical experience of the intelligence agencies to be together with the best data scientists and programmers. And in that, we can find that magic. And, and you guys are obviously using machine learning to predict, uh, you know, all this kind of uh, cyber attacks. So so what, what does that look like when you are able to really predict uh, cyber attack catastrophe? So, you know, look, there's many different levels of that. And and I think, you know, here is now you have to be very humble about like the different levels you can do this at. The There is everything from sort of the, the lowest level where you want to be able to say, here is an IP address or here is a domain or a collection of IP addresses or a collection of domains that either 
have been used historically for doing bad stuff, or you may have never, ever observed them before, and you believe now, or the system believes now, uh, that they will be used in a malicious manner. Uh, so, and, and so our software will be a, through a combination of AI and machine learning techniques, good old data analysis techniques. I tend to be one of those who like to say that it's not just about fancy machine learning type stuff. There's more basic analytical methods and a combination of other, you know, methods being able to say that, you know, these core elements of, of malicious infrastructures might be coming alive all the way over to be able to pull together and say, look, this threat actor is the word that we like to use, but that could be a criminal or it could be a, a an intelligence agency, a cyber criminal or intelligence agency. And being able to say that they're about to embark on a particular mission, be it stealing money or stealing information, that's typically what criminals and intel agencies are about, stealing money and information, uh, sometimes wrecking more havoc than that. But when you're dealing with that, when you really want to say something at that higher level, now it's going to be a combination of humans and machines. And so, um, yeah, no, it depends on what level you're at, but we've been able to build a, the system that can operate at all these different levels and then bring together the, the sort of the software machinery that we built and, and data machinery that we built with the best analysts and be able to service this to our customers. So I guess to, to get more visibility and, and, and I guess like a better understanding, no? Like what would have been like, let's, let's, let's talk about like the largest catastrophe that, that, you know, perhaps we can discuss here that you think you guys would have been able to predict. So predict, we try to be a little bit careful about, you know, predict and, you know, so, but I think they're good examples. Uh, so, um, after some of these NSA tools got legs or started moving around the, I might be speaking sort of uh, speak here of uh, sort of uh, uh, very domain specific, but these tool sets call eternal blue. There's like this whole set of, uh, we'll call them cyber tools or, or offensive tools called uh, eternal blue and, and, and so on that, that uh, got stolen from the NSA and ended up in the wild. Um, and, those tool sets, we were able to sort of observe them early on in certain Russian forums and the like. It was able to put out warnings, and we put out the warning in such a way that it was just, we went sort of completely public with it. Some, some other times we will sort of hold it back and only get it to our clients, you know, who obviously sort of pay for this sort of information. And I think we did that early and was able to be one of the sort of contributors to be able to hold back on the potential problems that could come out of that. That's a good example. And... Um, We've certainly seen uh, work that we've done that has either led to direct work that we've done that led to arrest of cyber criminals or also, or our customers uh, being able to uh, work, you know, could be either law enforcement themselves or, or our sort of commercial clients working with law enforcement to get cyber criminals uh, arrested. Um, one of the things that makes me particularly proud myself, because I had the chance to be involved in this myself, was... Uh, with the Chinese intelligence agency called MSS, the Ministry of State Security. They ran a big scheme of, uh, somewhat complicated, but basically holding back on informing the Chinese and their local region about software vulnerabilities. And we found their scheme on how to do that. We published about that scheme. They tried to cover up the scheme. We published a report on their cover-up and then made them stop this malicious behavior altogether. That's probably our biggest intelligence win that we've done altogether. And it's probably, to your, to your question, it's less about that one sort of catastrophe to stop because, you know, we, we try to not think about this in the ticking bomb scenario, but it's more about dismantling malicious infrastructure, dismantling bad behavior so that you can help make a better internet altogether over a long period of time. Yeah. No, makes sense. And there's a lot of people now that are thinking about the third world war not being like the type of war that where you have like all the tanks and the bombings and stuff like that, but more like being cybersecurity uh, related stuff. Uh, so so how do you how do you think about that? How do you see it? So it's, it, you know, there's two ways of thinking about it. There is the A, this sort of constant information war that is going on that has always happened. You know, you you. And, and it's sort of the, the war of spies, the, the you know, the we'll, we'll just, spy wars, whatever you want to call it. And that's always happened. It's happened for hundreds of years, for thousands of years. 
Now, the internet provide me, provides means to do this from a distance. That means that, you know, if Spain wants to send, get their hands some information from somebody in South America, they don't necessarily need to send an intelligence officer to South America, but they can find a way to get to it from a distance. So it makes it more convenient if you want. And now, you know, likewise, this sort of information war might not just be about stealing information, but it might be about influencing an election, miscrediting somebody, the sort of stuff that we've saw around the U.S. election, and we've certainly seen around other European elections. Again, you know, that sort of propaganda war type of stuff has been going on for hundreds and if not thousands of years, but it's just at a different scale. So. I think that's we're in the midst of that. That's going down as we see. What we still haven't seen is sort of the we've we've seen the sort of things where city of Atlanta got locked down, uh, the the city hall and and their sort of systems around it uh, based on ransomware. What we haven't really seen just and we've seen some specific things like Stuxnet, with, where presumably the West uh, went at uh, Iranian nuclear you know, centrifuge uh, equipment. You know, that sort of very pointed things. We haven't seen somebody do this at large scale just yet. I think we will. Um, so I think we're in the early innings. Uh, this will happen. And we have a lot of work to do to to clean up our systems to make sure that we're not going to be on the receiving end of this. There's a lot of work in front of us. Absolutely. So so how do you guys make money at Recorded Future, Christopher? Yeah, no, it's a good question. So so. But again, the way that we think about our business model, you asked about that before, is that we think about this as a Bloomberg screen of cybersecurity. We charge for both our screen, our UI, we think about it as our portal, and that has all the tools, all the insights, all the data that a cybersecurity professional needs to be the best cybersecurity professional, just like a Bloomberg screen helps a, a trader be the best trader. We then also provide the same, basically the same information, but provided as data uh, in a way that people can use that to be able to feed it into all kinds of systems and inform machines. And I'd say that our business is more or less 50-50, providing data to users and and the other half uh, providing to machines. And and, um, it just ends up being a very attractive business model with high retention rates, high degrees of growth, high degrees of uh, margin, if you want. And and it's, yeah, it's a good good business model. Nice. And how much capital have you guys raised? You were talking about investors. Yeah, earlier. no, we've raised uh, $56 million, so a little bit more this time. But we actually have more than half of that still in the bank. Uh, so we've tried to be very capital efficient. Uh we built a solid business model here, and um, uh, we were cash flow neutral last year, and that's while growing sort of eighty percent. So it's it's good. It's it's a good model. Um, nice sort of annually paid in advance business model that just turns out to be pretty efficient. So why did you go this route of uh, being cash flow positive, break even versus? You know, like the other uh, hyper-growth companies are doing, like burning cash like crazy. Like, why did you? <laughs> no, it's, you know, so look, we're happy to um, to gr- with our growth been in the sort of 80 percent range. I think we could sort of try to make it for a hundred, hundred and twenty percent. That's, I think, what a lot of people try to do. They try to fund, uh, you know, build a business plan that that supports that. I think the risk they take is that they end up with. Um, they frank, frankly just sort of fund something that has a very high de- degree or high 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 degree of risk around failure, and so by picking this sort of perfect 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 is a, that's not a great word, but you know, well, an aim aiming for perfection uh, sort of growth rate where we can both get aggressive growth and you know be cash flow neutral more or less uh, ends up being a pretty good sweet spot, and we've been very disciplined around our business model to make that happen. Yeah. No makes uh, makes complete sense. And and you know, I even see I even saw I believe that you guys didn't even touch the money from your last that's round. True. We so haven't that's, touched uh, it. We're just we have it in a pile sitting on a table and we just sit here and look at it all day and, and think about how we're not gonna spend it. 
That's amazing. Well, that's good to know. Now I know who is inviting for dinner next time, Absolutely. Christopher. <laughs> good stuff. And I see that on your uh, list of investors. I mean, incredible people, Google Ventures, Inside Partners, Balderton Capital. So did you uh, feel being this the second time around and all, and also being a fully exited, you know, that, that has gone through the full cycle as a founder, uh, type of thing, like, like easier for you to raise money? I think it's that it's a great question because the way I think about it is it's easier to raise money. It's, you know, doesn't matter in any type of asset management, people will throw money after somebody who's made money before. That's absolutely the case. Uh, so, so the, the, the world is skewed towards you. Um, which makes sense. You know, it doesn't matter if it's a hedge fund manager, private equity manager, whatever, you know, like anybody who, uh, or a uh, entrepreneur, anybody who's going to look for money, it's going to, it's going to be skewed towards them. So that's one. On the other hand, you know, so that's all good news, but who cares? What actually matters is that you still, as an entrepreneur, need to go learn all the lessons yet again to the business you're trying to do. And for us here, so many, there is a few, obviously, some core things about how to manage a sales force, how to manage an engineering group, how to build a management team. A bunch of those lessons are pretty timeless. But at the same time, you know, we are now in a completely new market here. So I had to personally just learn security, which in many ways is a very odd, not odd, but it's it's just has a lot of sort of uh, specifics to it. It's a very sort of particular market is probably the right word to use. And we're now selling SaaS. It's all multi-tenants. It's all cloud. It, it's so many things that are different. So there are a lot of things to unlearn and start over. I hear you. I hear you. And and you've been at it. You know, this is the second rodeo. Raised a, a ton of money from 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 investors. Also done the exit. But you know, anyone that would look at this would be like, oh my God, Christopher is uh, so successful and everything. Looks so glamorous, but but Christopher, you and I know that the life of an entrepreneur is very far uh, away from from anything glamorous. And and I want to ask you here, what has been a very dark uh, uh, moment for you as an entrepreneur that really has made you be the founder that you are today? It's a good question. I think in both cases, both with um, Spotfire and Recorder Future, the days before we found product market fit, those are tough days. Because, you know, without that, you're sort of low, nobody. You may have cute technology, but it's uh, it's hard. Um, that for sure. Uh, those days are tough. And, and the thing is that they're not moments. You know, like if somebody shows this on a movie or in a film or a TV episode or something, it looks like it's a moment in time. But in reality is that these days, you know, what, what they are like are like that. It's, it's like um, people say that there's you know, good days and bad days. No, it's, it's a month of 30 days and 29 days kind of royally sucks. But then there's that one day when a customer says that he loves what you're doing or an employee is thrilled or where the high of that one day makes up for those other 29 days. And I think maybe what happens is when you go from uh, those early days is that you sort of move from, from, when it's 29 days of misery and one day good into a world where maybe the mix ends up being a little bit more uh, manageable for the long term, but it's never going to be sort of at the, the sort of where it's all glamorous and good by any means. This, this stuff is tough. It's just, you know, you're dealing with a lot of crap and shit and, and, you know, and the, as the quote unquote, the problem as a CEO is obviously that you basically have to put on a strong face, a brave face and and, and and maybe even a happy face all the time. You just have to keep doing it. Yeah, and it's that's also lonely job. being at the top. <laughs> that's saying that's for sure. No, I I hear you, Christopher. And and how big is Recorded Future today? So we're three hundred and eighty people. Um, we're you know call it sixty million, sixty a little bit more that we did in ARR we did last year. And, you know, this year we're growing pretty nicely. If, if all things goes well here, we should pass 100 million. So, you know, things are getting to a, to a good place. Wow. Wow. Well, congratulations, Christopher. That's very impressive. So, so I want to ask you one question that I typically ask the guests that we have on the, on the show. And that is knowing what you know now, eh, Christopher, if you had the opportunity to talk with your younger self, that younger self that was coming out of of doing the PhD, if you had that opportunity to 
tell your younger self one piece of business advice, what would that be and why? Good question. Because first, my, my first advice would be to do exactly what we did yet again. That would be number one. <laughs> that is sort of, is, uh, I can't imagine a job that is better than this. This is sort of like, I like to say to people, look, you can, I'll, I'll do this for free. <laughs> and that's right. not because I have a lot of money or anything. I'll, I'll do it for free. It's, it's just, I love this. It's just the profound love for doing this. So that's number one. Number two, uh, in terms of advice, I would just say, oh, you know, the, I think the biggest advice in all of this is, and this, I say this after having sat here now talked for 45 minutes, but it's listen, just listen and listen. You have two ears, one mouth. Just try to listen because there's so much to learn. And, 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 you know, find those smart people who you can learn from and just never forget that. It's easy, especially, you know, because when you're 25, it sort of comes naturally that you're like, look, I don't know shit. I better learn fast. <laughs> now, <laughs> when you become 50, it becomes a different thing because then you're like, oh, I already know all the answers. But no, you don't. And in fact, there are going to be a bunch of smart 25-year-olds that you need to learn from. So that's probably the, the most sort of fundamental one that I would, that I would put out there. I love it. And for the folks that are listening, Christopher, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Oh, good question. I don't know. Twitter, probably. Uh, at C. Alberg. Uh, you'll find me. Uh, at and then C-A-H-L-B-E-R-G. Twitter, that might be the easiest way to find me. Amazing. I'm on, well, and I'm on LinkedIn as well. So you can find me there, too. Can't say that I'm great at LinkedIn messages, but... <laughs> <laughs> got it, got it. Cool. Well, Christopher, thank you so much for being on the Deal Maker Show today. Thank you very much for having me. This was fun. You asked good questions. It was awesome. Thank you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.